Today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be talking about this idea that heaven rejoices when the lost are found. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 15, we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of the chapter, and uh, in this portion of Scripture, it, it, it shows us the reaction that the Lord has ultimately, and even that the angels have, when someone who does not know Christ comes to know Christ and, and gives their life over to Him. So Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 1, this is what it says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." Let's pray together. Lord, as we take a look at this portion of your word together this morning, we pray that you'd speak to our minds and speak to our hearts and help us to ultimately know you and to walk with you and to rejoice over the things that you communicate to us in a portion of Scripture like this. Lord, this is a very interesting portion of your word. This is certainly a portion of your word that I have taken great personal encouragement from many times throughout the course of my life. And Lord, I pray that for each of us gathered together here, those of us joining us uh, online, Lord, that for each of us under the hearing of your word this morning, that this would be an encouragement to our hearts as well. And we thank you for the privilege to be able to look at this together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the benefits of living during this era in time is that it's actually very difficult to get lost. So if you, if you wanted to get lost, it's actually very difficult to get lost. You know, at this point, if we're unsure where we are, all we need to do is take our phone out of our pocket and put directions into it, or we just need to kind of punch some, some directions into a GPS, and then within a few seconds, we know exactly where we're going. And it's not like I would necessarily want to go back to what life was like before we had that luxury, but sometimes I think, you know, the fact that it's very difficult to get lost, it's kind of like, where's the fun in that? You know, back in the day, we used to get lost all the time. Sometimes I get nostalgic for the days when you could get in a car, start driving, and then spend several hours trying to figure out, where am I? And I remember one particular time when I was a relatively new driver. I was about 17, and my younger sister, who's just a year younger than me, was 16. We were working at a summer camp together, and we got one day off per week, and that was Saturdays. And so sometimes we would try and do something fun, maybe with a few friends. And so we decided that Saturday, since we were all working together, we had the day off together, we thought, let's go to an amusement park. 
And so that's what we did. And we found our way to an amusement park. It was a little over an hour from the camp, and we had a great time, and, and it was a lot of fun. But we were very tired when we were driving back, and it was also very late and dark when we were driving back. And my sister volunteered to take her car that day. And as we were driving back to the camp, which isn't necessarily an easy place to find on its own, even in the daylight, um, she admitted to me partway through the drive, she said, I have no idea where I'm going. I, can't, I don't even know where we are. None of this looks familiar. This is different from the route we took to get to the amusement park, and I don't really know how to get back to the camp. And so we were driving a little bit further and a little bit further, and finally she said, I literally, I have no idea where we are. And uh, that became known to the other people that were in the car with us. I was sitting up front with her, and, and I, it became clear to me that both my sister and the passengers were saying, John, surely you know how to get us back. I did not know how to get us back, but when I felt like four other people were expecting me to know to get us back, I said, you know what, that's fine, I'll, I'll drive, it's fine, I'll drive, and I thought, this is either going to end really well, it's going to be a glorious success, or it's going to be a very humiliating defeat, because I, I did not know how to get back either, and so I just started guessing. That's what GPS was like, you know, 30 years ago. We just guess. Um, you know, our guessing position system, isn't that what it was? It's like, I think I'm directly under the earth's sun now, right? And then we, then we would go. Well, thankfully, I guessed correctly, enough that I got us to a familiar route. And when I found that familiar route, I thought, oh, we're nowhere near the camp. However, I know how to get to the camp from this road. And then we drove and everything worked out fine. And I was happy. And, um, you know, when you think about it, getting lost is not ideal. Now, it can be fun in a momentary adventure-type sense, but it's not ideal. But remaining lost is exasperating. And that's especially true in the spiritual sense. And the Scripture we're looking at today, that's what it's ultimately getting at. And since we were lost, it was for that reason that Jesus came to this earth to seek and to save us. We were lost. We didn't know where we were. We didn't know what to do. We were wandering. But through Christ's intervention, we can be found. And heaven rejoices when the lost are found. And that's what this scripture is ultimately showing to us. So we're going to work our way through Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, and be refreshed and reminded of the fact that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I want you to to see something right away, even before we get into the parables that Jesus shared. There's something interesting that I think we should look at in the first two verses, even before the parables, because it kind of sets up what Jesus is doing. And you can see on the screen behind me, I have, I have the statement there, don't let your critics set your agenda. Now, why am I saying that? Well, when you look at the early verses here of Luke chapter 15, ultimately what Christ is doing is he's showing that he has come to this earth for a mission, for a purpose. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he's got the timing all figured out, and it's all laid out, and it's all according to plan, and nothing is ultimately going to be out of line. And there are people that look at what he's doing, and they don't like it, and they have something to say about it, and they decide to criticize him, but you're going to notice it doesn't it doesn't steer him onto a different course. He responds to it a particular way because he's on a mission. He's on a mission to seek and to save the lost. But let me reread those first two verses with this in mind, this idea of not letting our critics set our agenda. It says this in verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners. 
and eats with them. Now, let's pause there for just a second. In our present day, right now, during this era that we live in, who would you say is most familiar with the content of the Bible? Just a category of person. In your mind, who, who would you say, you would say, all right, that person or that category of person is probably a person that I would say is most familiar with the content of the Bible. I'm assuming that if I asked for a few guesses out loud, you'd probably say pastors, you would probably say seminary professors, uh, maybe some of you would say certain authors. Uh, I think some of us would probably also point out the fact that people that have known Christ for a long time and have spent decades and decades reading the Scripture regularly, faithfully, daily, they're probably very familiar with the content of Scripture. I think all of those answers are probably correct. Now, I always find it interesting to observe how people reacted to Jesus during the days of His earthly ministry, and it's fascinating to me to realize that those who seem to know the Scripture best... Some of the people that are even referenced here in verses 1 and 2, um, they actually seem the most distant to Jesus and the most critical of Jesus, which is fascinating to me when you think about it. And you have that dynamic at play here in Luke 15. You have the Pharisees and you have the scribes that are mentioned here. And these were people that had major portions of Scripture memorized. I actually... um, saw something on TV a while back where a guy started quoting Scripture, and he then made it clear that he had the entire book of 1 John memorized. And I thought, that guy, that's impressive. It's not one of the longer books of the Bible, but I don't have it memorized exactly. Anyone here have an entire book of the Bible, even one of the short ones, completely memorized? So none of us? Okay, so we're in the same boat. Um, But I watched this guy, and he had an entire book of the Bible memorized, and he was just sharing it on TV, and I thought, wow, like, that's impressive. Well, to be one of the Pharisees in particular that are referenced in this passage of Scripture, you had to have major portions of Scripture. You you couldn't just be familiar with them. You had to have them memorized exactly. That if somebody snapped their finger and said, all right, recite this portion of the Word of God, you could do it. Long portions. And they were, it, it was pretty impressive that they were able to do that. So the scribes, that was the case for them as well. But here you have the the Pharisees and the scribes not recognizing the fulfillment of prophecy, prophecies that they have committed to memory. They don't have it in their mind, even as it's being fulfilled right in front of their face. So they're not recognizing Jesus, even though they have the Scripture memorized. But who does the Scripture tell us here was actually flocking to Him? tells us that the tax collectors and sinners... They came running to Jesus. They received Jesus gladly. They joyfully dined with him. Is anyone here a tax collector? Nobody? All right, I don't know who joins us on the live stream all the time, so maybe someone on the, t- on the live stream is a, a tax collector. I once said something critical of tax collectors when I was preaching as a guest speaker at a church and then discovered that somebody in the second row was a tax collector, and I was like, I hope that's not going to come back to bite me. (laughs) I thought somehow that could. But in this particular era, tax collectors, they would lump them in with sinners because the tax collectors, the way they would make their personal living would be by overcharging you for your taxes. So your taxes would only be a certain amount, and they would overcharge you, and then they would pocket the difference. And typically, in that culture, tax collectors were wealthy because they would rip everybody off. And so frequently in the New Testament, you'll see tax collectors and sinners lumped together. Tax collectors and sinners. And here it tells us that that the, the scribes and Pharisees, they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, but the tax collectors and sinners are willing and eager to sit down with them for a meal. 
And by the way, oddly enough, when you look at this sort of thing, that dynamic is still at play. This world, and, uh, it, this world is, is full of critical people. And critical people in our day have something very much in common with critical people during previous eras. And this is what happens. If a person is overly critical, what ends up happening is this. They become convinced of their own self-righteousness, so convinced of their self-righteousness that they start to minimize their need for the righteousness of Christ. So they think of themselves as already being righteous. They don't think they need Christ's intervention in their life. They don't think they need His righteousness. And then what they also start to do is they start to set up arbitrary standards of perfection that they invent in their own mind, and then they severely judge anyone who doesn't live up to their arbitrary standards. That's how self-righteousness works. So if someone is self-righteousness, they create their own standard, and then they judge you because you don't meet their standard. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. That's what people do in our era as well. It happens quite frequently. And you have Jesus dealing with that issue right here in this passage. He was being criticized. Notice what he's being criticized for. He's being criticized for associating with people who had colorful reputations. I'm saying that politely, right? They had colorful reputations. He was being criticized by people who had an agenda. And I'll say this, don't be surprised if you experience something similar, if you're intent on following Christ and being very open about it. I have never dealt with as much criticism in my life as I did when I became very open about my faith. Even when I became a pastor in particular, you you start to discover, you then kind of open yourself up to be a target. And... um, and I think it's interesting when you, when you look at how Jesus handled this in this portion of Scripture, he's being targeted with the arrows of his critics as he's doing the right thing, and he shows us how to respond to criticism when our time comes. So if you choose to be open about your faith, you will receive arrows. If you're not receiving arrows, you either have a really, really good set of friends that are very kind to you and are always mature, Or it might be time to step up your game a little bit and become a little bit more open about your faith. But here Jesus is showing that he knows what he's here to do. He's here to accomplish something very specific, and he's not going to let those critics steer him onto the wrong course or a different course. What he was doing is he wasn't letting hard-hearted, self-righteous critics who had a selfish agenda interrupt his selfless plans. I had an interesting conversation with my son Daniel the other day. I have his permission to share this with you, but I will keep it somewhat brief. I won't go into every detail. But he made me proud the other day, and the reason he made me proud was because, and I don't think he even realized he was making me feel proud, but he was being criticized by someone in his peer group because of his faith in Christ. And he's a nice guy, and so it actually bothered him. You know, it bothered him more than it would probably bother some personalities, but his personality, it, you know, is, um, I don't know, he's a nicer guy than I am, and so it, it bothered him. And, um, and so we were talking about that, and I said, you know what, I've received that too from time to time, and I want to share, I shared with him two things that helped me, and I was hopeful that it would help him, but then I thought, I should share this with the church, especially in light of what Jesus was dealing with in this portion of Scripture, because what you're dealing with, if you get those arrows slung at you, is not uncommon. I mean, it's exactly what Jesus dealt with during His time on earth, and it's exactly what you will deal with the second you put yourself out there in any realm. One of the things I love, I'll tell here's the two things I shared with Daniel. These are two things I remind myself of. Um, 
One is from Teddy Roosevelt. I quote him probably, I don't know, once a year in a sermon. I love Teddy Roosevelt. I don't know if you like him or dislike him. He was president over 100 years ago, and I think he's just a very interesting person to study. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a leader, and he was somebody who would go and do things, and he did not let criticism stop him from doing what he was convinced was the right thing to do. Now, you could argue, did he do the right thing or did he do the wrong thing? Well, he, he followed what his conscience was leading him to do. He was a man of conscience, and so he would do what he felt his conscience was leading him to do. But when you do that, sometimes you deal with criticism. Usually, you will deal with criticism, criticism especially if you're up in front of people. And being president, that's certainly going to put you up in front of a few people. And this is what he said about the criticism that he received, because he would receive it regularly. It's a longer quote, and maybe you've heard it before, but he said this. He says, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the, in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I love that quote. It's a long one. I don't have it memorized. I had to read it to you. (laughs) But I love it. And so I I said, Daniel, can I share this with you? I actually had him look it up on his computer, and he's like, that's interesting. And so we thought about it. I said, can I show you one thing that's better? I love that quote, but there's a quote that's even better. And it's from Jesus himself, and it's from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Look at what Jesus said about this. He says this, and take this to heart, okay? If you ever take arrows for your faith in Christ, he says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So think about that. You know, if you're criticized for your faith in Christ, you're being treated just like Christ was, just like the prophets were. And that's pretty good company to keep. So how closely are you walking with Jesus? What has he prodded your heart to do that others just don't seem to understand? And what have you done when those critics emerged? Did you veer off course or did you keep on the path that Christ was leading you to follow? And here you have Jesus receiving criticism. He's just there to help people. And you have people just criticizing him and ripping him apart. But that doesn't stop him from having those meals with those sinners and with those tax collectors. He's like, you know what? I'm not ashamed to hang out with them. And I love that about Christ. And then he goes a little bit further in this portion of Scripture to show us just how far he's willing to go to rescue someone who needs to be saved. Look at what it tells us when you look at verses 3 through 7. There illustrates for us the fact that Jesus is not willing, or he's not, excuse me, he's not waiting for his sheep to come find him. He's looking for his sheep. He's being active, not passive about it. Look at what it says in verse 3 down to verse 7. It says, so he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. One of the most interesting and effective ways, I think, to, to teach a point or to teach a principle is to use a story. Um, even just this past weekend, I started reading a book. It's only, the book's only 156 pages long, and I bought it yesterday. And I, I stayed up late last night because I didn't want to put it down. And I, I made it to past one, page 100, and I thought, all right, stop. You've got to put the book down. You've got to go to bed. You have to actually preach in the morning, John, right? And so I, but I didn't want to put it down. And the reason I didn't want to put it down is because it was just filled with so much interesting life story and application from the author that I was gripped by it. It was fascinating. And so I just kept reading it and reading it. And later today, I hope if I have the energy, I plan to finish the book. But it's got story, and story sticks in my mind. It sticks in my heart. Our minds remember stories because they implement, or they, you know, we can implement them, but they impact us on multiple levels. And while we're learning the information that you find in a story, what you have is your emotions get tugged, and your desire to take action, it actually gets stirred up. And when you look at how Jesus taught, when he taught, he would often use stories and he would use parables. So you teach with stories, you would teach with parables, and he would do that to make his point. And sometimes he said he would do that because he was trying to conceal certain information from his critics, while at the same time revealing certain things to confused people who he opened up their mind and opened up their eyes to understand the truth that he was trying to communicate. And in this portion of Scripture here, you have Jesus telling the story about a shepherd. Tells a story about a shepherd. Keep that in mind because frequently in Scripture, Jesus himself is referred to as a shepherd. And in this case, he was speaking to leaders who were supposed to be caring for people like a shepherd cares for people, except these particular leaders, they weren't showing that shepherd's heart to the people they were supposed to be caring for. Now, a few years ago, I decided to to read up a little bit on shepherding, and I did it in preparation for something that I was speaking on, because I don't know a whole lot about shepherding. But I was actually curious, how many sheep can a shepherd oversee if it's just one guy overseeing a flock? What's the standard amount? How many sheep do they typically oversee? And I actually learned something that I thought was interesting in light of this particular parable. A reasonable number of sheep for a skilled shepherd to be able to oversee if he's just by himself, the article said about 100 or so. About 100 or so. If you have one shepherd who's overseeing a group of sheep, He could oversee maybe about a hundred or so. So I thought that was interesting when you look at this parable, because here you have Jesus talking about the fact that he's got a a shepherd with a hundred sheep. And so at the end of the day, what does a shepherd do? Well, at the end of the day, he does a head count. And he wants to make sure that he's ending the day with the same amount of sheep that he started the day with. And so Jesus speaks of the shepherd in this parable, in this example, as coming to the realization at the end of the day that one of his sheep is lost. One of them's gone. And uh, some people would say, all right, you know, it's one. You still have 99, right? Okay, well, how about this? Take your children to an amusement park and explain to your wife why you came home with all except one of them. How's that going to go, right? Probably won't go super well. She's probably going to want you to bring the other one home too, right? And a caring shepherd, which is what we're, we're seeing here in this portion of Scripture, a caring shepherd goes after the missing sheep. And so in this context, you have the shepherd seeking the sheep out, and then not only seeking it out, but then carrying 
it back. And he even invites his friends and his neighbors to rejoice with him that that lost sheep is now found. So what sort of deeper truths do you suppose Jesus wanted anyone who would eventually either hear this parable read or would read it for themselves? What sort of deeper truths did he want us to understand? Whether those that were were reading it were critics or whether those who were reading it were his family. I think what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to communicate the fact that he doesn't wait around for the lost to find him. Rather, he comes looking for them. He doesn't wait around for the lost to come and find him. He comes looking for them. And think about that for a second, because so often we think we found him. You know, if you follow Jesus, if you worship Jesus, there's a part of us that at times may think, yeah, there was that day when all of a sudden it dawned on me that I needed him, and so I went looking for him. It's like, no, that's not really what was happening. Behind the scenes, what was he doing? He came looking for you. And the reason your affections were even warmed to the thought of following him is because he softened your heart. And here, he, you know, he shows that the shepherd comes looking for the sheep. Jesus came to this earth looking for us. He was born in the flesh. He interjected himself into all aspects of the human experience in order to reveal himself to those who were lost and to rescue anyone who would be willing to trust in him. He came looking for us. We weren't looking for him. He came looking for us. And if Christ didn't seek us, we would have never come to know him. In fact, we're reminded of this, and I'll prove this statement to you in just a second with a quote from uh, the book of Romans, chapter 3. We weren't seeking Him. He came seeking us. Look at what it says in Romans 3, in verses 10 and 11 of Romans 3. It says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. We weren't wise enough. We weren't righteous enough. We were completely lost completely. We weren't just a little bit lost. We were as lost as lost could be. We weren't righteous, we weren't wise, and we weren't seeking God. So you look at that and you think, wait a second, how how did this relationship even come about? We weren't righteous, we weren't wise, we weren't even seeking Him. And He looked at us and He said, I have compassion on that lost sheep, and I'm going to go find them. We weren't seeking God. He came seeking us. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up and and get our act together and to start looking for Him. He came and found us while we were still covered in the filth of living in the pit that we had started to call home. And we didn't even realize we needed Him. What we were doing, and all of us probably have a testimony that can testify to this in one respect or another, is we were trying to fill the void in our soul with the very things that were killing us. We were trying to fill the void in our soul with the very things that were killing us, and yet Jesus loved us enough to offer himself to us. And that's what he was demonstrating when he was eating with the tax collectors. That's what he was demonstrating when he was was eating with these sinners. And that's what these Pharisees and scribes found so unpalatable. They hated that he would do this. But he didn't get veered off the mission. He said, look, I've got a mission, and I'm here to fulfill it. And I came to seek and to save those who were lost. There's one other thing that's illustrated in Luke chapter 15, and this is where I want to finish up for us today, because it's very celebratory. In fact, what it tells us here, when you look at verses 8, 9, and 10, is that your heart is going to be revealed by whatever you celebrate. The things that you celebrate are going to reveal what you value. Your heart is going to be revealed by what you celebrate. Look at those verses as as, uh, we wind this down together today. Verses 8, 9, and 10 say this, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? 
And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, the Christmas season, we're in the midst of it here. We're in the the final push or the final stretch of it here. This is a time of year that is filled with celebrations. This is a time of year that we spend a lot of time rejoicing. Churches celebrate. By the way, I'll invite you to join us Christmas Eve, 7 o'clock if you're available. We'll be celebrating the incarnation of Christ, the birth of Christ. So you have churches celebrating. You have employers and employees celebrating. Um, you have families celebrating, you have students celebrating, some people celebrate during this time of the year uh, the financial bonuses that they received. I was listening to the radio the other day, and uh, on the radio the other day, a guy was being interviewed, and his boss had just given him a raise, or a bonus, a Christmas bonus of $17,000. Do you think you'd be pretty happy with your boss if your boss was like, you know what, this is a really good year, here's seventeen k. Do you think you'd feel like celebrating? Are you, I'm sorry, are you guys too religious to like get like all excited about uh, your boss giving you 17K? The guy on the radio, he was pretty excited. And uh, he's like, yeah, my boss gave me 17. I don't know where he came up with the number of 17. It's like, why is it not 15 or 20? But it was 17. I think it was profit sharing, something like that. But he was celebrating it, right? Think about all the things we get to celebrate during this time of year. You know, we, we celebrate um, quality time with family. We celebrate food. I have to stop celebrating food. I've been doing too much food celebrating, and I'm either going to need to just go all the way with that uh, and buy new pants or, or settle down the celebrations a little bit, you know, sometimes soon, right? Sometimes we can over-celebrate things. I think I over-celebrate food. It's my weakness. I'm not going to lie. We celebrate gifts. We celebrate time with family. We celebrate much-needed rest. There's all sorts of things that we have the opportunity to celebrate, and those are all certainly enjoyable things, right? Every one of those things are enjoyable things, but for those who know Jesus Christ, we're given the privilege to celebrate His sacrificial intervention in our lives. That's, what we're, that's the big thing we're celebrating, right? Even the kids, as they come up here in just a little bit and share with us, what are we teaching them to celebrate? The sacrificial intervention that Christ has made in our lives. The fact that in Christ, the lost are found. And so Jesus here in this portion of Scripture, he illustrates that one other way. He illustrated it with the, the analogy or the parable related to the shepherd, but he also talks about um, this, this lost coin that this woman starts to seek for, right? So in this parable, he shares about a woman who finds her lost coin. And he demonstrates here that this object was of great value to her. Now, keep in mind the context in which this story is being communicated. A silver coin would have been of great value to a woman living during this particular time, particularly if she didn't have very many options by which she could support herself. And in that era, it was very, very difficult at times for for women to be able to support themselves if they didn't have outside help. So here you have this woman, she has 10 coins, and she loses one of those coins, and assuming that these coins are essentially her life savings, you can imagine the frantic nature that she would go on a search, you know, trying to find one of those coins if it's lost, because that essentially represents one-tenth of her entire nest egg, one-tenth of her wealth. You know, would you go searching for 10% of your earthly wealth if it was lost? I'm certain that any one of us would. And we could also empathize with the relief that this woman expresses and the joy she expresses after finding that coin once it was found. But the bigger point that Jesus is trying to make here 
It's not about personal finances, although that's certainly a concept that we all understand. He was ultimately talking about lost people being connected with their Creator. He was demonstrating the the great value that even one human life has to God. That one lost sheep, that one lost coin. And Christ wanted to, to make it clear to us that even the holy angels rejoice when a man or a woman repents of their unbelief and they trust in Christ and they begin walking with Christ by faith, that does not go unnoticed by heaven. The Lord rejoices, the angels rejoice. came across an interesting article, actually several years ago I came across it, but I was reminded of it recently. And it was an article about how common it is for people to minimize their value to God. So in our own minds, we have this habit of minimizing the fact that we actually are of value to God, but it's like we don't want to believe it. And in the article, they said, you know, that can happen at any time of year, but they said there's a time of year where people tend to do that more than other times of the year. And the time of year where people tend to minimize their value to God most is the month of December. I don't know why we do that so much during the month of December, but apparently, according to this study, we have a habit of minimizing our value to God, and it comes to a crescendo, it seems, in the month of December. So let me say this. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with those emotions. I would assume you probably have. Probably all of us have at one point or another. But if you've been preaching a message to your heart that tells your heart you are unnoticed by God or, un, uh, or not valuable to God, I'd encourage you to try and line that message up with what Christ is communicating in this passage, because isn't Christ communicating very opposite? He's trying to demonstrate to us in multiple ways just how valuable you are to God. If the angels in heaven would rejoice when just one lost person is found, we should never allow our hearts to adopt the belief that we are unseen, unloved, or lacking in value in the eyes of God. Let me say this as we finish up. And this is what I'm going to do. I realize, so whenever I stand in this pulpit and, and preach, I'm, I'm trying to convince us of things, right? I'm trying to communicate things, and I'm trying to convince us of things, but I also know that I can't really convince anyone of anything, which is, seems like a hopeless thing when you're preparing sermons, right? You're like, hey, I'm going to try people, I'm going to try and convince people of something that I believe is true, but I also know deep down, I really can't convince people of anything, right? If you want to believe something, you'll believe it. If you don't want to believe it, you won't believe it. But I'm still going to try. And this is what I'm going to try and finish up with convincing your heart of today. The fact that you are not unseen, the fact that you are not unloved. And I'm going to show you three spots in Scripture that demonstrate the depth of God's love for you and what he was willing to do to bring you unto himself, what he was willing to do to seek you when you were lost. And I hope it convinces your heart, but I know that ultimately the Lord has to open our eyes and our hearts to actually receive that kind of truth. But I'm just going to show you what his word says, and I think his word can do the trick. But look at what it says to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, as it demonstrates the nature of the depth of God's love for us. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved, and raised up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So think about this, these statements here. Because of the great love with which He loved us, and the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us. These are demonstrations of the love of God for you, not somebody else, for you. How about this? In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, it says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the very thing that you see illustrated in Luke 15, that Jesus is not ashamed to sit down at a table for a meal with you and me, even though by nature we're sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God shows His love for us. And I'm going to show us one other verse in just a second, but I want to give you a little context. Do you ever read the book of Song of Solomon? It's one of the wisdom books in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a, a book, a musician that I, I uh, listened to, he said that when he was a child, his grandmother took his Bible and cut out the book of Song of Solomon because she, she didn't want him to read it yet because it illustrates a lot of things about love between a husband and wife. And she was like, ah, it's a little too much, little too much romance for young eyes and young ears. And she said, when you're older, I'll give this to you. And he's like, Okay. So when he was older, she never gave it to him. So, I don't know. Some people think it's the most risque part of all of Scripture. But one of the things that many theologians often comment about... So Scripture talks about the fact that the church, collectively, is referred to in Scripture as the bride of Christ. So Christ the groom, the church the bride. And when you think about the nature of a groom... I, we had a wedding here yesterday, right here, in this spot right here. You know what the groom and bride uh, did during most of the ceremony, you could actually see that we recorded it. It's on the church's uh, YouTube page. The two of them wept during most of the ceremony. They, they couldn't stop. I mean, just their love came out in tears yesterday. They wept. And it was beautiful to see the love for the groom, the love that the groom had for the bride, the love that the bride had for the groom. They wept the whole time. You could see, just look at the live stream if you get a chance to do it. They kept passing a hanky back and forth to each other. And I didn't, I'm calling it out now, so if they see the live stream today, whoops, but I didn't call it out during the wedding. But I actually thought it was, and I was talking to, you know, my family, I was like, wasn't that beautiful? Like, they just shared their first, like, marital hanky, you know, with each other. It's like, your tears are my tears, right? You know, and uh, it was just beautiful to see. There was deep love. So many theologians, when they read through the book of Song of Solomon, they say that book actually demonstrates the depth of a groom's love for a bride. It's a beautiful portion of Scripture that really does illustrate the nature of Christ's love for His church. So I'm going to read a verse for us as we finish up from the book of Song of Solomon, and I want you to apply it to yourself, understanding that Christ loves His church. And it says this in Song of Solomon, verses, or chapter 4, verse 7, it says, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You know what it tells us in Ephesians chapter 1? That through faith in Jesus Christ, how are we seen in the eyes of God from that moment on? Holy and blameless in His sight. Holy and blameless in His sight. He's willing to take somebody who was lost in sin and say, you know what, I'm coming to find you and I'm going to get you. 
and I'm going to carry you on my shoulders, and you're going to be mine. And I'm going to clean you up, and I'm going to forgive your sin, and I'm going to give you a brand new life, and it's going to be way better than the garbage that you were just enmeshed in before. And you're going to love it. And you're going to be convinced for all eternity that my love for you is not fickle, it's not temporary, and it doesn't go away. And that's the type of things that the Lord is trying to illustrate to us in the parables that he shared in this portion of Scripture. He's willing to come and get us even when we are at our lowest state. And that's something that I think our hearts should be refreshed by every day. But particularly here in the midst of this Christmas season, let's have hearts that are refreshed by the fact that we are not unloved, we are not unwanted, we are deeply loved by our Lord Jesus Christ, and he came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to just take a look at it together today and to think about the things that you've communicated to us in it. Lord, we don't deserve your love, we don't deserve your goodness, but you look at us and, and you, you communicate that, that in your eyes we are altogether beautiful. You see no flaw in us because you're seeing what you are making us to be. You're not looking at our past, you're not looking at where we were, you're looking at where you're bringing us and who you're making us to be. So Lord, we're just so grateful for that. And we just thank you for these reminders from your word. And Lord, in the midst of our celebrations during this Christmas season, we pray that we would celebrate the fact that you have come to seek and to save the lost, and that we have the privilege to know you, that we have the privilege to trust in you deeply. And we're so thankful that we have the privilege to be reminded of these things today. So we commit ourselves to you now, Lord. We pray that we would walk with you by faith, knowing that you welcome us into your presence. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.